This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, officially the super-duperest culture podcast, and this is Mark Linsenmeyer, and my superpower is inaudibility. I'm Erica Spires, and my husband has convinced me that my superpower is persuasion. (laughs) And I'm Brian Hurt, and my superpower is being able to see 10 seconds into the past. I call it short-term memory. (laughs) And our guest. Hi, this is Travis Smith. I wasn't prepared to be funny off the top like this. His superpower is super seriousness. My son calls me Mr. Serious all the time, serious. So my superpower is seriousness. And you also have the power of evaluating the superheroes because our topic today is first and foremost, just sort of why is the culture obsessed with superheroes? But specifically, we're doing this because you wrote this book called Superhero Ethics, 10 Comic Book Heroes, 10 Ways to Save the World. Which one do we need most now? Which is a a book of philosophical ethics, but I think unlike any other book like that, you don't just use it as a secret way of, we're going to talk about the superheroes for a second, but really it's just an excuse for me to teach you about Aristotle. (laughs) Like there's a minimum of name dropping and footnotes, and it's actually like about the superheroes. And you obviously have a really deep knowledge of comic book history. Can you say a little about your background and why you got interested in this and wrote this? So I started collecting comic books when I was in eighth grade. I had friends and relatives that had collections and would you know, read them if I went to the, a friend's cottage and they'd have a stack of old Archies or Harveys when I was younger. But I got into Power Pack and Alpha Flight and so forth as an adolescent in the 80s. And then one day I made the fateful decision to spend my own money on comic books. And uh, ever since then... I have continued with that habit and expense, starting with (laughs) X-Men 206 and Avengers 263, I believe I bought on the same day. And as a reader and writer of philosophy, the other part of my book, I started actually as a mild-mannered chemical engineering student and made the very lucrative decision to switch into political philosophy as an undergraduate. And ever since, I have been someone who lives in my head and gets lost in the ideas and arguments of old texts and was able to transform that passion into a day job and presently work as a professor of political philosophy at Concordia University of Montreal. Excellent. Can we join you up there? Uh, You know, it sounds like you guys are doing a little better than we are right now. Yeah, every four years, there's always talk about how many people are going to move to Canada. At least this time, no one's actually allowed to move to Canada. Oh, no, we have our borders shut to you. Yes, our prime minister has made sure that they are remaining shut for the foreseeable future. We know well. Did you get different comics up in Canada? Sort of like you got different TV shows with Degrassi Junior High and other things that just seem a little strange to us? Not really that I'm aware of. Not distributed to the newsstands, not distributed to comic book stores generally. I mean, there were and remain independent comic book writers and publishers in Canada. I live 40 minutes away from the store where the guy who wrote Cerebus shopped and lived. So he was our local indie comic book celebrity, but I never met him. I got to say something about this book that you wrote, Superhero Ethics. I'm not a philosopher, but what I found so charming about it, and maybe this is also because I just happened to watch the episode of The Simpsons, the monorail episode, where someone asks the huckster if the monorail is faster than the Flash. And he says, you bet. And then the next kid asks, is Superman faster than the Flash? And this primal need to compare superheroes and this framing device you have of chapter by chapter really 
pitting two superheroes against each other from an ethical perspective, not whether one would beat the other in a fight, though I guess that naturally comes to mind, but taking like-minded or similarly powered or, I don't know if that's quite the right word, but comparing, for example, Batman versus Spider-Man or Thor versus Superman, which is a chapter that I keyed in on for this discussion, really was effective. And I think these books can be very professorial sometimes and inaccessible if you're not very familiar with either the topic or the the philosophy. And I didn't have any trouble at all with that. And I found it really engaging. So thanks for sharing this with us. And I hope we have a chance to talk a little bit more about this in depth. I know we had a lot of different topics to cover with with this podcast. I really appreciate that, Brian. Part of the struggle of writing it was trying to find a way to combine those two parts of the book, the comic book lover and someone who teaches philosophy to undergraduates principally and to do so in a fashion that wasn't just reporting on the things that you find in comic books because there's already enough publications like that heck wikipedia already contains everything on everybody that you'd ever need to know it's funny everyone always says don't look to wikipedia as a reliable resource for information right and generally speaking on contestable political things that's probably good advice but when it comes to things like the fandoms of comic books the fanboys and the fangirls are going to make absolute sure that everything on Wikipedia is exactly correct and how dare anybody make any mistakes, right? So it's actually very reliable by and large, but I don't want to just be reporting on comic books and talking as a fan of superheroes. And I also, as an academic, I go to conferences by comic scholars and you know, extremely wide variety of different kinds of scholarship is done on comic books. And you're right, though, a lot of it really is, as you would imagine, academics writing for other academics in a very academic-y way. And I wanted to avoid that, too. So I, I was striving to find a way to write where if you love comic books, but you're not you know, a huge reader of philosophy, you could still follow along. And if you read philosophy and maybe you only know superheroes from the movies, you could still follow along. Now, Travis, do you use this book in your classes? Do you actually teach the class superhero ethics? Because I would imagine that would be a very popular course. I haven't done that. No, I'm teaching you know, intro to political theory this semester and the graduate core methods class and how to do political theory research. You know, real doesn't quite get as many students as you would imagine that, you know, the pop culture class would. I'm thinking about writing other books along these lines and other aspects of pop culture, though. And so maybe down the road, I'd have enough material to uh, you know, try to force my students to buy my own books. But I haven't been doing that this year. So there's a relation between the, I think often on this podcast, we're kind of interested in why is something popular? What is it about the thing that resonates? And your book addresses sort of a subsection of that, that you're concerned with what our deepest moral ideals are and should be, and how these various heroes do and fall short of meeting those. You recognize a pluralism. That's why there's this competition that there are well, if you think that, you know, the problem with society is that the commons is defective and you have to go outside that, then Spider-Man might be your uh, working outside the law. One of those guys might be more your style as opposed to if you think that everybody needs to be roused to a common patriotic purpose than Captain America. And you have no problem being just straight up opinionated in this book. I like that, that it's not just pretending to be, we're just analyzing academically. But what the book leaves out on purpose, as you say, that what was the most recently introduced one was probably is that Wolverine from the 70s in the whole book. So everything is Green Lantern, Superman, Iron Man, things going back to the 60s, sometimes the 40s, very well established. And of course, you've got the deep comics knowledge, but also are drawing on the films. And most people are familiar with a lot of the films. And there's probably enough commonality 
enough consistency throughout the treatment of these folks that you feel like you can talk about like what the Iron Man ethic is, even though there's 40 years and a dozen writers of stuff beyond that. So part of the reason we timed this episode now is because we knew that season two of The Boys was coming out, the Amazon show. And that's one of the sort of more modern takes on superheroes that is not so much asking what morally admirable do we find in superheroes, but like what is the appeal of this at all? This is something masterminded by Garth Ennis, who I think is well known, even though he's written a bunch of runs of The Punisher, for kind of despising superhero comics and resenting the fact that like, if you're going to be a comics writer, you kind of have to do superhero comics to get the big money, I guess. (laughs) He could just do small indie things. And he does, but they so dominate that form of media. So I was interested in this connection between what is highest in superheroes, how superheroes reflect our highest ideals, versus how they just reflect our fears, our general attitudes, sort of a wider range. It seems like you've kind of ruled out cynicism. Is that an accurate starting point, that something like The Boys is starting with the premise that anybody that has that much power is probably going to be corrupt. At least it's going to be really likely. But that's certainly going against the mainstream grain of comics through the last 40 years. Right. I didn't start with cynicism. And you mentioned Aristotle. Right? I follow you know, classical ethical approach. Which is you start where your readers are. Or you start where the people you're speaking to are as a rhetorical strategy. In a book on superheroes, you don't start with antagonism towards superheroes. You start with a shared love of superheroes. But along the way, I aim to raise questions, critical questions about them and think critically about each one. So I didn't just write about how awesome each one of them was in their own way, even though you're right, I did try to be pluralistic. But I did try to recognize that there are different ways of living, different kinds of characters that are admirable in different ways. But we can still think critically about them. And so I tried to call each one into question as I went. And I think throughout the book, there might be occasional remarks that are suspicious of our love of heroes and our admiration of heroic ethic. But they don't go all the way to sort of condemning heroism or cynicism regarding superheroes such of the sort that you've gotten from the Watchmen through to the boys as part of the literature. That would be a whole other book. So I think I made critical remarks along the way. You're right, I do focus on the most well-known, best well-established characters to make sure my book was as accessible to as many readers as possible. I didn't want to just write a book that depended on everybody having a catalog of 20,000 comic books in their collection or in their mind in order to follow along. I thought that would be a smaller audience, even though that would have been a book I could have written too. But I didn't want to do that. I did make sure that throughout the chapters, I'm peppering them with reference to less well-known characters to make sure that when I describe one character, I can show, yeah, there are other examples of characters like that or other ones that are worth considering that are not given full treatment in the book. I read the chapter on Batman versus Spider-Man. And as I was reading it, I was like, oh my God, why do I like Batman so much? Why have I enjoyed him so much? You were very critical of him. And and like you said, you weren't demonizing Batman by any means. I just realized some more things in the philosophy that I hadn't really attributed to Batman in, in the past. And maybe just because as a kid growing up, I didn't read the comics when I was younger. I just saw the movies and he just seemed so cool. And he's somebody we wanted to be like because he's rich and smart and resourceful. All of a sudden you made me realize so much about his philosophy that is very dark. And really in in that chapter made me realize how much I liked Spider-Man without having realized that before. That's interesting. Yeah, Batman does just automatically seem cooler and Spider-Man does automatically kind of seem cheesier. 
a certain degree of maturity is needed in order to say, you know what, I'm actually a lot more like Peter Parker than I am like Bruce Wayne. I keep wondering, who am I most like? Is it Peter Parker? Is it Charlie Brown? Is it Kermit the Frog? Which one of these childhood characters am I actually in my soul most like? And then sort of humbling to sort of go, oh my God, I'm a Charlie Brown, aren't I? But <laughs> Batman, yeah, I don't need to demonize Batman. Batman demonizes himself well enough, doesn't he? I mean, what do you think those ears on his cowl really are? They're not bad ears. But of course, you know, he needs to appear terrifying for the benefit of scaring the superstitious and cowardly lot that is, you know, criminality and villainy. But yeah, I really aim to do that. I tried to be sympathetic to the characters that I didn't love as a child. I tried to be critical of the ones that I I might be inclined to like more. I did a lot of Batman reading that I had never done before. Old books from the 60s and the 70s, especially, which I did not grow up on and really found that I actually personally enjoy reading Batman stories more than I realized, and then also dislike the character more than I realized. There's a kind of wish fulfillment quality to all of these characters, and Batman allows people to imagine themselves to have darker and more threatening qualities than comic book collectors tend to actually have in their real lives. I had read an interview with Todd McFarlane, creator of Spawn, years ago, and he was talking about how Batman was really one of the worst examples of a superhero because he really has everything already going for him. He has no reason to become a superhero. He's rich and he's white and he's not damaged and all these other things that, of course, Spawn becomes Spawn because what other choice does that character have? But Bruce Wayne really has no business taking up this cape. And that made sense to me at the time, though, as I get older, I realize that people have problems no matter what. And I think I relate to the damage that Bruce Wayne has. And he may be a a billionaire by now. I think he might have been a millionaire back in the day, but certainly he's a a billionaire in modern times. He won't show us his tax returns. We we don't know. But don't you think that both Batman and Spider-Man both have the, like, with great power comes great responsibility? It's just in different ways how they choose to wield that responsibility. I think you're right, Eric, and that's how I addressed it in the book in a way is, how do you go about exercising the responsibility that you think you have to help others? And in that chapter, I tried to say Spider-Man does it, to use sort of very crude political commonplace language, Spider-Man does it from the ground up from the neighborhood level to the community and beyond. And Batman aspires to seek sort of control from the top down. He presumes more or less to be the informal, unofficial ruler of Gotham City behind the scenes and thinks it's his personal responsibility to watch everybody and everything and to lurk and to sneak and to impose himself directly in order to you know, crush injustice wherever it sprouts up, right? So it's a top-down approach to how do we help people? How do we save people? And so there is a way in which Batman does recognize what, you know, Brian pointed out his privilege, right? And like great heroes, he recognizes the question is, okay, what do I do with my privilege? And he thinks that what I do with my privilege is help everybody else in Gotham City and protect Gotham City. So he's got a responsibility that's attached to his privilege. And he's a thousand percent dedicated to living up to that responsibility. And he can't bear any kind of failure. And for him, failure means failing to anticipate something and not just failing to react to something. Whereas Spider-Man is much more reactive, right? Spider-Man goes on patrol. I mean, that's one of the things about Spider-Man and his amazing friends in the 80s that was off. This sort of secret computer room that they all had was something. That's a Batman thing. That's not a Spider-Man thing. Behind Batman's responsible use of his privilege remains this idea that he is genuinely superior to everybody else in pretty much every way. And that superiority of his entitles him to assume this position of 
the guardian and effectively the unofficial indirect ruler of Gotham City. There's a great moment where Batman recognizes that if he had the powers of Superman, he would rule directly. Right? He only rules indirectly because that's the best way he can go about doing it with what he's got. But if he had Superman's powers, the question of why doesn't Superman rule would be answered with Batman. Well, Batman would rule for everybody's own good, right? I mean, he is the smartest. He is the most omni-capable. And so if he did rule, wouldn't it be great for everybody? The most benevolent dictator is still the dictator. So there is a, I don't know if you've ever read it, an alternate universe. I think it's just a one shot where Kal-El is raised by the Waynes and becomes the Batman, but has Superman powers. And there are all these other oddball ones, one where Kal-El crashes in England and dons a cape with the Union Jack on it, and one where he crash lands in Russia. I haven't read all these, and I, I find it so fascinating that we want to keep plugging this overpowered, completely OP superhero into all these different situations to see what he would become other than Superman. And that comment about Batman made me think of it, but it also kind of draws me on to Superman being the one comic I really read as a kid. And I mentioned before on this podcast, I don't read many comics as an adult, but that was the one I would pick up at the drugstore and read. And Superboy also. And it was just straight up. It wasn't even very good. It was just wish fulfillment for me. I was kind of a put upon kid. And the idea of not taking shit from nobody, sure, sounded good to me. But of course, I wouldn't have Superman's morality at all. I would have my own morality, which is to say, as a kid, very little, possibly none. And I would use that power to defend myself and possibly put upon others. So it's fun to re-examine this as an adult. I don't think that I hadn't thought that much about Superman. It's not my area of interest, comics, and the lens of Superman as a savior. I'm Jewish, and I always think of the Moses story, and it has all the trappings of him and especially the name, that Hebrew-sounding name, Kalel, he seems like a Jew to me. But truly, he is Jesus in terms of being among us, but not one of us, and being this thing to aspire to. And you raise the question of, is he something that we should try to be like, or is he something better than us that we can't even be? And, and that really informs what we're supposed to do with Superman. A lot of people find him boring because, as you say, he's too OP. And yet somehow he manages to have enough dramatic tension in his stories. How does that even happen? Issue after issue, someone get enough of an upper hand on this guy. He must be a sap or there just must be too much kryptonite out there. I don't know what it is. There is arguments among people about exactly this. And some people say, you know, writing Superman stories has to be the most difficult thing because he's so hard to beat, right? How, where's his weakness? But nevertheless, you're right. There's over a thousand issues of action comics out there right now. So it's a challenge for writers, right? But you mentioned the Moses story. The best use of the Moses story in superhero dumb in the last few years was in the Logan movie. If you saw it in black and white, that's the best. Where he got to go down to Mexico, where the last remaining mutants are being held in captivity and to liberate them and bring them to a promised land, which happens to be Canada. And Logan himself doesn't make it there. He dies with the insight of where he is, but doesn't get to cross the border back home to his true home again. The Moses story, the Jesus story are among the sort of archetypal stories that hero stories are going to be based on. Superhero stories are going to be based on Superman. I enjoyed Superman growing up, but I, he wasn't one of my favorites. Superboy I had a contempt for because I thought it was too immature. I've actually come to enjoy classic Superboy stories, especially Legion of Superhero stories. I've recently read the entire run of Legion through now, and I absolutely love the Legion, did not grow up on it. I thought it was you know, the stupid version of the future, and it's actually quite great to read those books. We are living in the stupid version of the future, just to clarify. 
I really like in the chapter on Superman where coincidentally we just read the theodicy for Partially Examined Life, my philosophy podcast. So talking about that Superman's real problem is that he can't be everywhere at once, is that there's always something going on. I don't know if he really has the hearing to hear what's happening in Europe, say, from America, but it seems like there's no practical limit to his sensory powers. So if he were Batman, as you describe him, so obsessed with preventing everything bad from happening, then he would just be constantly on the go. But the fact that, look, it's just a storytelling problem that we have to have this dramatic, you know, if he wasn't Clark Kent, if he wasn't spending time wooing his Lois Lane and writing stories of the Daily Planet, then we wouldn't identify with this guy. But every moment he's doing that, somebody is being murdered <laughs> that he's not preventing. And so that should be really the real moral problem that, you know, it's just like, why doesn't God prevent suffering in the universe? Because he basically has the powers of God. Well, and see, this is why we need a Spider-Man, because we need community engagement, right? The way I approach the book is to remember these are all metaphors, right? And so as with Star Wars or Star Trek or any kind of fantasy world, once you start trying to take it too literally and try to figure out exactly the mechanics of how everything works out, well, then you get midi-chlorians. And so there's some fun to be had in telling stories that take them just straightforwardly, literally, and then trying to poke holes in the ways in which they would not work, in fact, if they were really real, literally on their own terms. And of course, this is, I think, a problem of sort of our technological age, the way we're raised to think these days, the ways we're educated to think. We're raised to think very literally today. Poetical education, education in literary devices, in rhetoric, in metaphor, that's very neglected in today's society. So we have a tendency to read things overly literally. And part of what I tried to do in my book was to remind people about the importance of looking at things, especially artistic creations, metaphorically. And so you can pick at them and prove that this wouldn't really work in reality, but that's sort of not really what they're about. I've said that my book is about superheroes, but it's not really about superheroes. It's about us. Their superpowers are metaphors for actual human excellences that real people actually have. So if we want to analyze, criticize superheroes, try to figure out what actual real life kinds of people or leaders or ways of life do they actually sort of metaphorically represent. I even downplay the heroism part. Heroism is very problematic. I'd love to talk about this for any period of time, about how problematic the impulse to be a hero is, or the impulse to admire and depend on heroes from a democratic perspective. That's very problematic to us. Yet we still feel this impulse. Otherwise, these movies wouldn't make the box office that they do. It's still We still feel strongly that heroes are to be admired or that one is supposed to try to be heroic, even if you never feel that for more than you know a few seconds in the theater and you watch them go, yeah, I wish I was more like that for five seconds. So I look at them as not so much heroic, but just ethical, like ordinary, everyday virtues that everybody ought to try to live out. And they're much more mundane, non-super lives. And that's how I try to treat the characters in my book, because as superheroes, I mean, there's something always very problematic about anyone calling themselves a hero, let alone the idea that someone would call themselves a superhero. That's insane. That's megalomaniacal or something, no matter how good you are. Travis, I wonder a little bit, and you've talked about the popularity of the movies. Is it the heroism that really people are drawn to, or is it just the badass spectacle of it all? I don't know the answer to that, and I ask that maybe to the group, but I feel like when we start seeing flawed heroes or people who behave in ways that are maybe heroic-like, but they maybe really aren't doing good things or just doing big things, we're still really drawn to it, and, and you can still have an audience for it. Also, when we try to have straight up heroic characters, sometimes that doesn't resonate. 
it doesn't seem like that's the thing that's drawing people into these movies. It's the big special effects and it's the snappy writing and the eye candy and the blockbuster nature of them more than the superhero part of it or the hero part of superhero. Yeah. In classical Greek literature, heroes were part of tragedies. And so they were always inherently flawed. And the stories usually resulted in the hero not quite achieving or accomplishing or acquiring the thing that they set out to get or do. You think that they could have and should have. It's not that they were, it was impossible, but something tragic happens that makes it fall apart. And the characters where things work out well, the things, the situations are extraordinary, fantastical, and it all turns out great. Those are called comedies, not tragedies. And in the classical sense, comic characters are usually people who don't deserve to succeed, but they do despite everything. And it's interesting that superheroes belong to comic books because their stories tend to be comedy, because they do work out fantastically anyways. They, you know, Superman is the character that always wins. The line is always that with Spider-Man, et cetera, they came along and started having more failings and didn't always succeed. And even when they got one victory, something else went wrong. To make, you know, there's sort of a recognition that you need to have the tragic element, not just the comic element to make these stories compelling and to make them familiar to us and so that we can feel for them more or associate with them better. So I wonder about that connection between the tragic that you were just saying is a welcome addition to comic books and the realistic, which you were saying is sort of beside the point that we should be reading these metaphorically. But those seem to go hand in hand, right? That the postmodern, what if superheroes are real? Like that was already Stan Lee's thing. Like that was the thing of Spider-Man having to worry about how to pay the bills. You know, that was the big advantage of the Marvel approach over at least Superman. I don't know if the DC, if some of the other characters had similarly mundane or slash realistic in quotes, I'm saying problems built in there. Yeah, it seems to be a slippery slope. And now our main version of Batman is this Christopher Nolan movies. Like my kids won't even watch the 1980s and 90s Batman movies which already is this like gritty postmodern superhero. This idea of what would the world be like if there were superheroes, again, read metaphorically, all you have to say is what would the world be like if there were people with extraordinary abilities, great minds, great talents? What would the world be like? Well, that's our world, right? There are people who, even if they don't shoot laser beams from their eyes to make people have their heads explode just by looking at them, there are still, nevertheless, all kinds of extraordinary abilities that people possess of mind and of character. And so, sort of a liberal democratic perspective, this is an interesting puzzle because we're all committed to the principle or the value of equality. And yet it is the case that we're all different in all these kinds of ways. And the question of how do our differences, how do the different ways in which one person is better than other people at other things manifest and utilize their abilities or superiorities? And if you ask the question, what would that be like in the real world? Would people abuse those abilities? Well, of course they would. Would people present themselves as heroic while, of course, actually just you know being self-serving and seeking glory? Of course they would. They do. But would it also be the case that there'd be some people that would be genuinely fighting for justice and making sacrifices and fulfilling their duty? Probably some. We could argue about what the ratios might be. But the radioactive spider biting you and having the power to crawl on a wall is not literally real yet. I mean, who knows what they're going to design and eventually. But the metaphors for if I could do more on behalf of my community with the brains I got or the talents I possess, would I, could I, is a real question for all of us. Well, I don't know how it works up in Canada. 
Travis, but here in America, money is power. And we have billionaires and some use that money for good in part. And we've seen great philanthropy. And we've also seen really horrible use of this money toward amoral and undemocratic and some terrible purposes. But I don't think any one person is all of one thing or another. And that's where we get into the complexities of what real people are like versus what people are like in stories. And stories are better when you start with that broad brush so you can understand a character quickly and you can add depth and nuance and whatever else. But that's not how real people are. So this whole idea of what would people really be like with superpowers, probably we'd get something that was a muddled story that didn't make any sense because that's what real people are like in the real world. We started talking about the boys early on. And Mark, I think you mentioned the word cynical. I mean, I, I think it's just realistic to expect that someone with a vested interest in making money or gaining influence or power using superhero powers, there would be plenty of people who that would be the natural thing for them to do. And then people who got those powers, there will be some who are self-interested and are going to do what they want to do with them. And it's a pretty realistic TV show, as far as I'm concerned, completely plausible outcome of there being superpowers in our current corporate world that we live in. Yeah, I think that character of Homelander is especially interesting because the world sees him one way. The people who know him see him a completely different way. And the more that we start to get to know the character Homelander, even though he's maybe the most scary evil superhero I've seen in a while... <laughs> he really does seem to do things for what he truly believes is the greater good. Yes, he is self-serving, but it seems to me that he's more self-serving with a purpose of making the United States a better place in his mind. In a similar way where Batman is obsessed specifically with Gotham. And even in this second season, it goes more into that being nationalistic as opposed to making the world a better place. Although isn't there also just to complete the idea that if you were had godlike powers... It would be difficult not to just grow a, maybe that's too strong. It would not be <laughs> terribly unexpected that you would grow to completely devalue regular human life. Yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at with Batman. I mean, he kind of both cares so much for everybody in Gotham, but he doesn't have a great deal of respect for ordinary humanity. He believes that they need him so bad. Gotham must always have a Batman is a kind of horrifying prospect, especially when taken to mean that the world needs people like Batman to rescue us and care for us because otherwise we're helpless and hopeless on our own and we're in desperate need of wise and powerful saviors to come to our rescue. But it's one of the things I address in the book is sort of as a metaphor for politics, right? I mean, there are always people who are happy to put themselves forward to be your hero, who will come to your rescue, to be your great representative, to alleviate your suffering, to make those who are making you suffer pay. And if only you give them more and more power, you imagine how much good they'll do on your behalf, right? They might hold rallies or something like that to get people on a frenzy worked up and an adoring crowd cheering for them entrusting to them great authority to bring them what they take to be justice, which might well just be self-interested. So that's a real thing. There's always the case that somebody's one person's hero is another person's villain. And so when you look at what other people are propping up as their leaders and heroes and celebrating as the champions, right? That's a good way where the champions, there's always a suspicion. Well, are they really doing it because it's right? Are they really doing it because they're going to be a benefactor to those who are suffering and in need, or are they just 
themselves exploiting a situation. And they might even, there's one of the worst things that happens is that you might make the people that you pretend to assist and help worse off so that they need you more desperately still. That's a thing that happens. And so that's the danger of the problem of hero admiration. I mean, the idea of the heroic leader is, is tied to authoritarian theories in political philosophy. Like the charismatic heroic leader tends to be authoritarian. But at the same time, if you take seriously the idea that superheroes are metaphors for all of us and not just the Batmans who would presume to rule Gotham, if only they could. And there are, of course, books like The Authority and things like that where they followed up on the idea what if the superheroes actually did actually directly take in charge. That, you know, if we took it literally, really. Ever since The Watchmen, there have been a number of things in between that and the boys that you know, ask that question. But if you take it instead to be about why can't we all be more heroic, right? The part of us that is inclined to praise heroes and wish we were heroes is not the most rational part of us. It's the part that wants to protect and it's the part that gets angry and it's the part that gets indignant. And those voices in our heads aren't always the most rational ones, even if we're sure of our righteousness and our intentions and our cause. Just because you think you're the hero or could be the hero doesn't mean you're really the hero, right? Just because you think you've identified the villains and the monsters doesn't mean that you are correct in seeing them smashed. And so, you know, the idea that everybody tries to become like a hero is also unsettling. Well, and being a hero just doesn't work in that populist sort of way because you're only really a hero if others aren't. You can't be elevated to that place unless everyone is left sort of in their own needy place of needing a hero. I think that we all think in our minds that we'll be the hero and no one else will be. Stephen King talks about why The Stand was so appealing to people because if he writes a story where 95% of the population disappears or is destroyed, every reader thinks they're in that 5% that makes it. I think we all want to put ourselves in the shoes, but it doesn't make a bit of sense you know, realistically to do it that way. And there's a certain amount of selfishness that goes into wanting to being a hero, I think, or finding the appeal on that. You've made me think of this in a different way, that our heroism is tied to our reactions of like anger or justice. And those aren't always what was the most rational things. And so, yes, I can understand why we identify, I guess, with that. But why are we glorifying it rather than questioning it? And maybe that's part of these answers in, in the book that you wrote and, you know, even this discussion of the boys. I feel like it's closer to the idea of spectacle, this idea that we're identifying with the heroes and this is why we want to have hero stories is a little overblown or that we literally at this point idolize or want as our political leaders. I think it's the sensationalism and specifically it's the idea of magic, but done in a, an easily understandable, internally consistent on a character basis way and seeing how those interact. So in other words, yes, you can have something like Harry Potter that is very popular, but there's something elegant about, okay, this is the guy that can light himself on fire. That's the only thing he can do. <laughs> But this one can light himself on fire, but it's kind of through a cannonball way and it makes him fly. And this one, you know, having a very specified set of powers and just seeing how those characters interact, whether they're heroes, whether they're villains. At this point, I think the interest in anti-heroes and reformed villains who become heroes and heroes who become villains, like, I think we've demoralized it. You know, there's still obviously a very strong moral intuitions that go into like what constitutes a satisfying ending, things like that. But in terms of actually making these characters embody some ideal, yeah, I feel like the trope has dialectically <laughs> expanded, progressed beyond that point. So that now that it's, I don't know, maybe this is just my idiosyncratic intellectual appreciation of heroes. 
then is it that we need to be cynics? Because that feels wrong, too. I think that there's something inherent to the superhero story's appeal that says that it speaks to something. And keep in mind, these characters have their appeal around the world, among people whose culture is very different from ours or whose political regime is very different from ours. And yet these stories appeal to human beings as, as such. There's something about in us a realization that there are certain ways of life and different superheroes with different power sets can represent different ways of life, not only different abilities, but different attitudes toward what you should be using those abilities for and how. And there's no one way that everybody automatically admires. And so there's a recognition that different people would admire different kinds of people using their abilities in different kinds of ways. So it's not surprising that there's this proliferation of different heroic types. There are some people who just love the Hulk. Some people just love the Hulk, right? And there are people who don't get the Hulk at all. I remember what I was going to return to say about Brian's point. Sometimes these movies are just about the spectacle. Sometimes people just want to see a great big fight. I'm getting older. I fall asleep during a big fight now. There's 45 minutes of fighting at the end of the movie. I'll sleep through it. I'm a character and dialogue guy now. You know, it has to have good characters. Have to have good dialogue. Plot doesn't even matter so much to me anymore. Character study is what I like to see now. But you know, I remember in you know college, one of my best friends, the world's biggest Alpha Flight fan, would always say, "It's a guy's movie if there's explosions, and there's a, it's a chick movie if there's no explosions, except if there's one explosion, and then people just have their feelings about the explosion. Then it's a chick movie. And forget the explosion; it's not a guy movie. And so there are people who just want to see big fights. I'm a professional wrestling fan. Professional wrestling is a kind of theater." in which on any given show, you have to appeal to a dozen different audiences in the span of a few hours. You know, some people are just there to see people get hit with chairs and barbed wire bats. And there are other people there who are there to see characters tell stories. And so there's something about the superhero movies that, in the variety of them that capture that. Some people just want to see Deadpool be snarky. And some people can't bear to watch Deadpool be snarky for two hours. I was sort of taking my, uh, we enjoy simplistic characters. Don't make them 3D. <laughs> make them literally 2D. I think movies in general, and especially in a action movie where so much time is dedicated to the action, there's just not that much time to give the characters that much depth. And we want to understand really quickly who we are rooting for and how. And movie makers are really talented at doing that. And we don't need a lot of information to understand what's going on, right? We know that Darth Vader is the supervillain before he opens his mouth. And that's through partly visual cues, and it's also through leaning on tropes, and I'm totally fine with it. And again, I apologize, I'm going back more to the movies than to the comics themselves, which I know is more the basis of your book, Travis, but it tends to be oddly more visual just because there's so much writing in those comic books and all the little boxes and the bubbles, and we're, I feel like there's too much information being dumped on us sometimes or this exposition that goes on in comic books that I appreciate something more like with 300, where there's less of that going on and I can just enjoy visually what's happening. But I think I generally enjoy the visual aspects of comic books more than the writing. Keep you away from Alan Moore. One of the things I actually really like about The Boys in particular is it's really funny. I have laughed out loud so many times. And I think part of the reason they're able to do that is because it's not necessarily comedy. Like there's a lot of darkness. So when you do get a moment to laugh, it's absolutely hilarious. And you don't have to think about the moral implications of everything (laughs) in that moment. Erica, don't you find that it's just gallows humor? You're laughing at it because it's like, boy, that sure is a dark world they're living in, kind of like ours. (laughs) I felt a little bad, you know, I had proposed this as a scheduling thing that we 
include the boys and I thought the whole season two would be dropped. But as I was reading more of Travis's book, I'm like, he's not going to like this show. <laughs> Do you have a quick take on the show? I've enjoyed the show a lot more than I expected. I'm not a Garth Ennis guy. I tried reading Preacher, didn't really love it. I've read some of his Punisher. You know, different writers speak to different people. So, you know, you latch onto the creators you like. And I still try to make sure that I appreciate why other people like different writers, even if they're not my favorite, especially to do any kind of analysis like I try to do in my book. You have to try to go outside of what do I like best? Who do I, who, who do I root for? That's the thing you got to put in check and question and interrogate rather than just run with. Otherwise, you're just three cheers, rah, rah, the things you happen to like. And then you're like Beavis and Butthead saying, I like things that are cool and I hate things that suck. But I've enjoyed the show more than I thought. I like that it is raising these questions about why do we admire heroes and should we admire heroes and what's really going on behind the scenes among the people who presume to be our heroes or our leaders, especially in the technological age and the ability to manipulate appearances and with, with fixers and managers who know how to smooth things over in PR departments. And the deep suspicion that the people who present themselves as the people we should trust with great power and great authority aren't necessarily admirable, praiseworthy, trustworthy as we wish they were. Now, I don't know if that's skepticism. That's a kind of prudential attitude that in mass society today, where the stakes are so high and the amount of power that's to be won in the real world, forget superpowers, just the amount of power that exists and one money to be won when the stakes are so high, uh, to have any expectation that anybody is squeaky clean and that they're just the good guys would be naive. I really liked the premise. I'm looking now that the comic started as far ago as 2006, and I don't think I read it that far after that, 2010 at the latest. So I don't have very clearly in mind like where it diverges and how much it diverges from the TV show. But I remember liking the idea of if the Super Friends was a thing and they were as out of control as is depicted, then there should be some sort of counterforce. And what could us mere mortals do in banding together just merely being hard asses and, you know, having psychological damage that would allow us to be an effective thing that, you know, could take down these heroes. And I don't know, I don't feel like the show has really zoomed in on that in the way, I mean, you know, it did in the first season of killing off the invisible guy. Anyway, it seems like that's been diluted by several other things that are going on. So it's not as, as unified. It seems like anything that you could dialectically spin off of the idea of a superhero in terms of how can we make this, oh, let's have a show that's all about the normals. Okay. Well, that actually happened. That was a, a very short lived DC show. Somebody has written a comic on any variation. <laughs> you could think of about this to try to undermine this. So I think the temptation to turn it upside down, to say, what if it was real, to get cynical is just unavoidable. <laughs> At least it's a thousand flowers have bloomed, let's say that. Yeah, there's something about the comic book medium, right? Because all it requires is pencil and ink on paper that has always allowed the creators in that medium to be often far in advance, especially of movies. I mean, I remember you know, growing up in the 80s, we never thought there'd be superhero movies like we have today. The idea that you could put Wolverine on the screen and find him at all believable was laughable. And then, you know, Hugh Jackman came along and said, watch me do it. And so now we've got these movies where they are much more like what in our only our imaginations in the 70s and 80s thought could be done only in pencil and paper. But it's not just with the superheroes. You're right. I mean, it's about anything. I was having a conversation with a friend just a few days ago, and, and she brought up, what if the virus became sentient, right? 
And I'm like, oh, there's already been a yellow lantern in the green comic books. That was a villainous, intelligent virus. I mean, the comic books have figured out everything long before the reality catches up, whether in fact or in fiction. Well, we should wrap up here. Any last thoughts from anybody? No, I just really appreciate the opportunity to be on Pretty Much Pop to discuss my book, Superhero Ethics. Thanks, Mark. Yes, we will point folks at where to purchase that. I did not intend to read the whole thing. I only assigned myself the first chapter. And it was almost all yesterday, actually, like in the last half of the day that I just cruised through. I could not put it down. Having a podcast is a motivation to finish something. But uh. Definitely for people who love superheroes or people who know people who love superheroes. This is a very accessible and interesting book as well. And also, Travis, thank you for being here with us. And you should definitely teach this as a class because I think it would be super well attended. Thank you. Thank you, Travis. Thanks, Brian. All right. So long, listeners. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.